Hey, everybody. All right, so this is what we got to do. Everybody's got to turn on the camera. We got to do the big group hug here, okay? Yeah, oh, it's, it's nice to see. There are actually bodies out there, humanoids. There's humanoids. Oh, keep waving. Oh, this is great. Because otherwise, yeah, I mean, one of these days we'll get back to the real deal, so to speak. But fantastic, wonderful. Okay, so what we do here is basically I, I do a small little whatever riff comes to mind. Um, and then it's basically Q&A. But Andy wanted to say something about something, a new thing that we started on nightclub. So fire away. Yeah, on a Saturday, we're doing movie night. So 8 p.m. Eastern time, 5 p.m. Pacific. And uh, this week, we're going to be watching Waking Life. So I've never seen it, but um, it was recommended by quite a few people. So it should be fun. Come join us. Um, totally informal. Um, but we'll have a little bit of a discussion after. So it should be fun. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, I thought it was a great idea. And uh, those of you who may have taken Stephen LaBerge's, you know, kind of famous 10-day Hawaii training programs, he almost, Becca, it could be every single night, he, he shows a, a video, a movie. And then we talk about it. So Truman Show, uh, what else have we seen? Um, what's that Aboriginal one? There's that one kind of dream time, I think it is. Um, you can see how impactful they were. <laughs> but every single night he'd have a, he'd have a, a, a dream related theme, a movie theme, and then we'd watch it and then we'd talk about it. Um, so. We had one last week, we had like 65 people show up. So that was pretty cool. So um, I will turn to some written questions and then my little riff here, but just a little bit of, of announcement stuff. I, I recorded last Friday, a really rich conversation with my friend and neuroscientist, Antoine Lutz. <clears throat> He's a pretty cool guy. And so um, we'll be releasing that um, probably within the week. <clears throat> we covered a huge array of material from the kind of this, you know, state of the art stuff going on in neuroscience. He's a, he's a philosopher, also trained in philosophy and psychology. So he brings a very wide lens. And I, I got to know Antoine um, seven, eight, nine years ago when they invited me out to his, to the big lab at University of Wisconsin-Madison with, with he and Richie Davidson. <clears throat> it was so much fun. Spent the whole weekend with these guys. So I had a terrific time interviewing him. I also just yesterday um, finally was able to have my interview with uh, Fariba Bogzaranj. I've been talking to her for like 16 months um, and she's great. I mean, what a wonderful, wonderful um, time and interview we had. She's written a number of books, um, Integral Dreaming. She's writing a, a, a book now on her 35 years of research in lucid dreaming. She's a PhD, I think she teaches at JFK University. Um, but we just had the greatest time because she's, she's also an artist. She lists herself as artist scientist. And so the stuff that we riffed about was really fun. So that was just yesterday. That was super cool. Um, next week, I'm doing round two with the Islamic scholar, Yusuf. Um, and I wanted to share, I don't know if I told you this last week, but he sent me a little riff. He said I could now start telling people about it. He sent me a, a, a thing a couple of weeks ago about um, 
This is my new pen pal from Baghdad. This guy's amazing. He just reached out to me spontaneously like five months ago. He's an amazing guy. And I've learned, I've already learned a ton from him about um, Islam altogether, just basic Islam, um, let alone like Sufism, the mystical aspect of it and how it all relates to dream yoga and sleep yoga. I mean, I'm sorry, lucid dreaming. But he told me that he was in um, active contact with the, like the prime minister um, and the whole department out of Pakistan. And they're inviting him to actually go into Pakistan and reestablish uh, Taxila, which is, I've been there. Um, it's, it, it was like almost equal in stature to Nalanda before it was destroyed. And so it's an amazing opportunity to bring about this kind of um, almost, you know, trans-religious. This is the theme that I've been uh, really enjoying for a while. All, you know, as a way to bring in um, all these different traditions um, under this ancient kind of university situation. So it's super exciting. And so I'm sure we'll be talking a little bit about that next week, but in particular, um, we're gonna be talking about the nocturnal <clears throat> stuff. And so I just wanted to share a tiny bit, you know, I'm writing, I think I told you, um, I'm writing this book. I'm having so much fun with this. This is an easy book to write. Uh, it's called, um, Okay, I'm Mindful. Now what? <laughs> Exploring the wonders of the mind. And it's a, it's, a, it's a critique of mindfulness, a healthy critique, um, just in terms of the limitations of mindfulness. Mindfulness is unbelievably important. And the mindfulness revolution is a really cool deal. But eventually uh, it can top out or bottom out um, because mindfulness in and of itself won't, won't lead to enlightenment. Um, even though some people say that it's not really true. Um, it basically on one level, and it's not so easy to define. It's one of the things that's been really interesting for me is, is it talking to all these scholars, translators from all over the world about what, what exactly is this thing called mindfulness? It's unbelievable how many definitions are out there. So the first thing I do is try to zip that definition down and then show that mindfulness is, um, uh, it, on one level, it's just a pacifier, uh, a really sophisticated, beautiful, elegant pacifier. But pacification alone doesn't liberate, insight liberates. So the Buddha didn't invent it. Um, the Buddha invented Vipassana, he invented insight. And so what I do is I, I do a gentle critique of the kind of limitations of the mindfulness thing. And then, okay, now what? Well, then there's all these other practices and I'm having a really fun time riffing on all those. And so just this morning, I started writing about the, the kind of the last third of this, this is gonna be a really short book, famous last words. <laughs> My aspiration was to keep it under 90 pages. I'm already at 90 pages. I just started writing this thing three weeks ago. It's like, oh man. So anyway, so just this morning I started writing about the nocturnal practices. And so I spent the morning writing about liminal dreaming, um, diving back into that world. And this is, uh, this is Jennifer Dumper's term, um, to her neologism, that's her word for what was called previously hypnagogic, hypnopompic, pre and post dream states. And uh, I interviewed Jennifer, by the way, in that club well over a year ago, cool gal. Um, quite a nice little book called Liminal Dreaming, something like exploring the edges of consciousness. But you know, it, it's really pretty interesting stuff because liminal dreaming is a way to explore, liminal means threshold. And in, in Buddhist language, this would be bardo dreaming. Um, it's that dream 
awake state when you're just falling into sleep. You're not awake, you're not asleep, you're not here, you're not there. That's a bardo. And so um, it's a really interesting state to explore. And one of the reasons that, that is very interesting is it um, kind of points to the importance and the notion of liminality altogether. That, um, you know, we have these kind of reified tendencies to think of things just, you know, so solidly, so articulately, so black and white, yes, no, on, off, dead, alive, you know, it's kind of binary way, dualistic way of relating to everything. And liminal dreaming is really cool because it's just, you know, pardon the play on words a little bit, but it's, it's not just black, white, it's like 50 shades of gray, right? Remember that? It was a really bad movie. I couldn't even get through it. Um, yeah, 50 shades of gray, like all the nuances of the mind. And one of the things that I was discovering when I was doing just a little bit of re-researching on this was how the notion of liminality altogether is actually really helpful that working with lucid, with liminal dreaming um, as a preparatory practice to lucid dreaming, and that's the way I contextualize it in the book. Um, it's also a way to, to work with liminal spaces and liminal states altogether that can kind of uh, expand our usual reifying ways. Um, and we see this now, once you, once you start to open your eyes to it, you know, this notion of liminality is ubiquitous, like transgender, bisexual people, they're liminal beings. Um, liminal spaces would include things like uh, transit um, lounges, airports, bus stations, um, hallways, funeral homes, um, elevators, any, any kind of space where you're not here, you're not there. Um, another liminal type of experience would be coming back from a really long trip. And you know, you arrive home, but you're not really home, right? You're home, but your mind is still back in whatever, Cabo. And so once you sensitize yourself to this notion of liminality, you see how it ties in really beautifully to the whole Bardo principle, that liminal states are absolutely everywhere. Bardo states are absolutely everywhere. And so by working with liminal states of consciousness, you know, this kind of dimmer model, um, you know, I think it's really important to transition from this kind of clumsy, outdated Western light switch model of mind, you know, on, off, yes, no, black, white, dead, alive. I mean, even scientists now, it's really interesting that um, I had a conversation with some scientists a couple of weeks ago, and we were talking about how with refined measurements, even in the neurosciences, they're actually now finding that parts of your brain can be awake and asleep. It's not like the whole thing is synchronous. You can have different aspects of your brain that are you know, fully online or not online or partially online. And, and so um, this is also, by the way, echoed in the great wisdom traditions where you know, I, I came across a really interesting text from the Nandul Shaiva Tantra tradition where they talk about nine different states of lucidity, nine different states where you take um, waking, dreaming and sleeping and then you have, here, I'll just do the first three and then you'll see how it works. You have waking within waking, waking within dreaming, waking within sleeping. And then you go to dreaming, dreaming within dreaming, dreaming within. And so you actually have this really interesting kind of granularity, gradations of consciousness, which replaces this Western light switch model with a dimmer. It's not on off, dead alive. It's gross to subtle to really subtle. 
And that's a great contribution of the meditative traditions um, and things like liminal dreaming. It, it, it installs this dimmer. Um, and I, saw, I throw this into the mix because a lot of people really struggle with lucid dreaming. You know, it's just not easy. But everybody can practice liminal dreaming, everybody. You know, you just, you're just more aware of your mind as, as there's this kind of decrescendo, diminuendo from gross to subtle to very subtle. And you can watch your mind popping in and out of consciousness. Um, there's actually a, a classic set of stages. This is articulated by Andreas Mavromatis, this massive book on hypnagogia he wrote years ago, where he talks in his cartography, these kind of classic stages of, of hypnagogia, which uh, I think is a little bit dated. Um, I don't agree with everything he says. Um, but one thing he does say that is really cool, one of the most interesting phases is this uh, transition from thought to thought image to dream. And so if you really pay attention to your dream and even installing this doctrine, this teaching can help you start to track this. You know, when you first lie down, you're still thinking, you're still somewhat in contact with the world, but then things start to slow down. You enter the sensory deprivation, deprivation chamber, the six, you know, the five consciousness dissolve pretty much into the body, right? Um, and eventually six consciousness itself starts to dissolve. That's mind as we know it. And you start to see that when you're dipping in and out. And so it's super interesting to, to track this because thoughts start to transition into a phase called thought image amalgamation. And you'll notice this, you know, your thinking decreases and your imaging increases. So thoughts are replaced by images. So you enter this really interesting hybridization of thought image amalgamation. There's still mental content, but it's not thought. Now it's images, not quite a dream. So that's the Bartle part. And then eventually if you track that, that thought image amalgamation will transition into these micro little dreamlets, these little hiccups of, of dreams where you can completely practice lucid dreaming. I mean, just because the thing is, you know, the dream lasts two, three, four, five seconds doesn't make it any less viable. I do this every single night. You know, it's like watching bubbles come up, you know, these little micro bubbles of dreams, you know, they pop up and another one comes up and it pops up. And, uh, you know, Tartan Tulku actually, Rinpoche talks about how you can, you can kind of hold the hand of a thought. I love this image. And like leading, a, like holding the hand of a child, you can lead, consciousness, you can lead that um, thought into this space and watch, this is my terminology, watch the winds inflate that thought into an image, into a dream. And it's, so it's, it's a form of wake initiated lucid dreaming um, where you can watch how thought becomes reality at the level of the dream. So it's, it's, it's really interesting and, and it expands not just the way we dream and fall into sleep and dream, but also expands our notion of liminality into the waking state, that um, things are not as articulate and reified and crisp as we think. There are these, you know, kind of 500 shades of gray. So, so that's my sermon for today. <laughs> so a couple of questions came in. Let me get through those and then we open it up to you guys, right? All right, so this was from Stan, Stan the man. Okay, so uh, <clears throat> I'm not limited in space and time if I realize that there isn't any matter. But if a thug comes along <laughs> and, 
and hits me over the head with a wrench, how come that kills me? <laughs> uh, oh, this, this question kills me, man. This is pretty funny, actually. <laughs> no, it's a good question, Stan. I'm just playing with you. Um, this is where you have to suss out the difference between relative and absolute truth, right? Um, it doesn't kill you, it kills your outer form. It, it, you know, relative truth, there is matter. There is, relatively speaking, there is matter. What we're challenging is not that appearance. We, the traditions, are challenging the status of that appearance. So on an absolute level, there isn't any matter. Um, you know, even physicists would sometimes say, oh, there's just energy. Well, what does that mean? But the fundamental thing here is that the wrench whacks you on the top of the head and it kills, it only kills your um, outer and um, inner, not your innermost self. Your innermost sense of self, literally called the changeless nature, is formless and therefore it's deathless. The, the wrench can't touch that part of you. <laughs> so it's going to definitely kill that which remains in form but it's not going to touch that which is formless. And, and for a really, really dramatic example of this, I, I, I show this video, it's pretty graphic, but it's stunning. It's one of, in fact, JFK, JFK, when the picture was released, it won the Pulitzer Prize, JFK said, this is the most impactful photograph in history. And I have to say, I agree. And the video itself is even more impactful. There's a video, I show it when I teach on reverse meditations, of the famous monk, remember during the Vietnam War, Thich Quan Duc was his name, who emulated, he, he burned himself alive in protest of religious injustice during the war. And he sat there in complete equanimity. I mean, it's the most amazing thing. It's not easy to watch, but it's stunning where he's sitting there, he pours the gas on him, he lights it so there's no murder involved. It's a type of religious suicide. And it's stunning film to watch. He, he literally just goes up in flames and he sits there in complete equanimity, utter equipoise, while his body is just being ravaged by the most powerful, violent environmental circumstances. He remains unmoved. And in fact, allegedly, if you read the clip behind it, when they, when they um, enshrined his body after that, they discovered his heart hadn't been burned. His heart wasn't touched. That's really interesting because um, that's where the Dharmakaya abides. So the wrench only whacks you on your physical head, Stan. You don't have a formless head. So get out of your head and into your formless body, and then you don't have to worry about these wrenches. <laughs> you don't even have to duck. When they come flying, they'll go right through you. <laughs> Some of the stuff I just, I have to play with it because it's, it's actually kind of cool. Okay, so this is from, uh, who's this from? N-A, Ma. Nah, either that means non-appropriate, non-applicable, or no answer, or just nah. <clears throat> Drinking too much water this morning. You spoke about my mom. Oh yeah, so I gave, I gave this little thing the other day about my mom dying and how Tonga Rinpoche did POA for her. Um, pretty powerful story. Uh, did it free my mom from reincarnation? How does the desire to be free of reincarnation fit with a bodhisattva vow? the commitment to reincarnate until all beings are enlightened. Well, I can't say what, what, what it did in terms of freeing her from rebirth, but the most important point th here is that's not the point. That, you know, it's, it, we're different. The Buddhists are different from other traditions like Hindu. Again, no criticism. 
but like the whole idea of moksha liberation, get out of samsara, get out of rebirth. The Buddhists don't agree with that. That's not the point in this tradition. The point is not getting out of rebirth. The point is getting out of involuntary, habitually driven karmic rebirth. That's the point. So that actually answers the second part of your question, right? That, um, you know, there's no fundamental desire to get out of rebirth in this tradition, involuntary rebirth. And therefore, what happens in the minds of the awakened ones in terms of the bodhisattva vow and then coming back, everything here, they, quote unquote, there's no they, but they express their wisdom spontaneously out of compassion. They literally don't even think about it. They don't have to think about it. It just arises naturally as compassionate manifestation. These are what we call the the true bodhisattvas, the true tukus, literally voluntary incarnates that have basically woken up, they become ultimate, ultimately lucid to this whole process. And then they, again, big quotations, they come back, not necessarily here, but into any dimension, um, 27 different states of samsaric existence, let alone all the trans samsaric pure lands and Buddha realms. I mean, it's just off, literally off the charts what they can do. But they do so out of love, compassion, benefit of others. They literally, literally don't have to think about it. It's a natural reflexive expression of their wisdom. And so this is important. In this tradition, you don't wanna get out of rebirth. You wanna get out of involuntary rebirth. So that then what you can do is you can form your mind, you can form your thoughts, you can come back to body, mind, world um, to help people wake up. Um, so it's not about getting out of rebirth. Okay, all right, uh, from Wally, Wally, Wally World. <laughs> hey, Wally. Okay, I'm making my way through Francis Tiso's tomb. Tome, I think you meant tome, not tomb. He's not dead yet, bud, T-O-M-E. He writes about tombs, but the book is a tome. <laughs> uh, so anyway, yeah, Wally's listening obviously to the, um, or reading the marvelous book of Francis Tiso, uh, Rainbow Binding Resurrection. He's the guy I interviewed three weeks ago, two weeks ago. Amazing, Catholic priest, knows more about Buddhism than 99% of the Buddhists I know. Unbelievable. So I'm working my way, <clears throat> working my way through Francis Tiso's tomb, tome, as well as progressive stages of meditation on emptiness, Campbell Rinpoche's book. <clears throat> I get confused. <clears throat> I get confused between the mind-only approach, <clears throat> excuse me, Chittamatra, and the Shentong, empty of other. <clears throat> can you give a short layperson explanation of the distinction? Yeah, I can do that. Is it the Chittamatra mind-only is proposing a truly existent mind? Yes, that's it exactly. Chittamatra is not a reifying honorific. Chittamatra is a pejorative. So when they, when the Chittamatra says that's stage two in Kempo Rinpoche's five stages, a monumental transition from a, a materialistic view to a mentalist view, idealistic view, mind only view, um, we tend to think that, oh, that, that's like some honor, honored state. No, it's actually a pejorative. Chittamatra is a pejorative. Um, and it's exactly what you said here that the, what Chichamata, the massive limitation, even though it's a colossal shift, I mean, when the pendulum sw swings from physical to, to mental, it's a little bit like the extreme path to the middle. 
we're so much physicalists, materialists, um, eternalists, that in order to find our way back to some centrist position, initially we swing all the way over into the mentalist side, it's idealist sides, literally called idealistic monism or whatever, there's so many terms for this. But it is a form of extremism, it's still extremist because what they do is exactly what you're saying, Wally, is they reify, they take that mind consciousness to be real. Um, and then you have to find your way back to the middle. So finding your way back to the middle is what the next three stages do. Um, Svatantraka, Majamaka, Prasangaka, Majamaka, and Shentak. Have you ever noticed that Sanskrit is like baby talk? Svatantraka, Majamaka. It sounds like it sounds like just babies. It's all vowels, right? There must be some mystical reason behind that. Really, I, I you know I listen to the Sanskrit stuff and it's like baby talk. It's beautiful. Svatantraka, Majamaka. Yes, Daddy. Yes, Daddy. Um, so <clears throat> I need a sip of water, I'm getting pretty goofy here. So what happens, you know, I get up so early, I'm just like writing and researching like all the way till I come up to talk to you guys. So I get a little goofy. I hope that's okay. Um, so then you have three stages. You, you go to the Chittamatra stage, that's still extremist. You're, now you're just reifying mind. So you gotta come back to the middle and you do that in these three stages. Um, Majamaka literally meaning middle way, and again, I can't go through all these, read Kempo's beautiful books. Svatantraka, Majamaka is the first one. Prasangaka, empty of um, self is the next one. That's the, the Dalai Lama, that's his main school. And then the last stage, which the, which the Galupas and the Dalai Lama, would, would, they would actually date, they would debate this one. They would challenge this. In fact, the Shantongpas, the Jolang tradition, when these texts were first translated, the Galupas actually deliberately mistranslated the texts as a way to say, oh, these Shantongpas, they can't deal with the, the harsh truth of emptiness, so they're reifying it as you know, luminosity. Really interesting kind of bastardization that occurred when the Shantong tradition came back and said fundamentally how it fits in. You know, you Majamakas, you're cutting, 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 cutting everything, super important, absolutely. That's why so much of the path, have you noticed this, is surgical. Dicing, cutting, slicing, you know, it's really kind of like getting rid of, cutting, cutting. But if you just keep cutting, that slips into nihilism. And so what the Shantongpas do, the, this is real Yogacara. Chittamatra is not Yogacara. Shantong is Yogacara. So what the Shantongpas do is they go, hey, yeah, thanks for the blade, Bajamakas, but let's put the blade aside a little bit here because you're cutting, you're, you're getting a little too nihilistic here. Don't cut what is. And what is, is um, what the Shantongpas describe, empty of other, not empty of self-nature, empty of other, which means empty of adventitious defilements, empty of what it, um, actually obscures this Buddha nature. So these are the third turning teachings. Again, this is a little bit geeky. This is a little academic, but this question is academic um, in a certain sense, actually interesting comment. It's not, it really is fundamentally not theoretical academic. It may seem that way only because we haven't experienced this stuff. Once you experience it, none of this is academic. This is a description of reality. So Kempo Rinpoche's five stages, progressive stages of meditation on emptiness, really progressive stages of meditation on reality. And so, yeah, so exactly what you say here, you, you got it, amigo. Um, Shantong is empty of true inherent existence, but there is something there, light, luminosity, 
what that thing is, is what the Shankompas describe. And to those of you who are doing the book study group, really in a certain sense, the first third of the book we just finished a couple of weeks ago, that was Wangtong, even though I didn't label it that way. Second part of the book is Shantong. So come join us for Tuesday night. We're still talking about this for another kalpa. I mean, I'm never gonna get through this damn book. I'm gonna be reading this thing until I die. <laughs> I just can't help myself. There's so much stuff to say in it. It's like, I'm, I'm getting less than 10 pages a week. I mean, we have at least another year. <laughs> okay. Oh, the questions are pouring in. So this is cool. All right. Um, let me get the two that were sent in. I'll take a couple more live ones and then I'll get these. Um, this is a little bit longer. <sighs> My question is about um, death and karma. <clears throat> My father passed away one month into the pandemic. Sorry, really, sorry, sorry. That's a big hit. Um, my father passed away one month into the pandemic and I was shocked by the desperate confusion I felt within the weight of the grief that centered around my perceived loss of karmic connection to my father. I understood that he was done with his lifetime moving on. He'd had his last memories of me and anyone else he'd know in his life and would not be taking them with him. He was done with me and yet I would continue to have the memories of him and be chewing on the karmic knots I'd had with him throughout my life. At first it felt like an abandonment I was not expecting. But now, eight months later, I wonder if it isn't an opportunity to clear a lot of karma <clears throat> because I can work with awareness when things arise in the field of emptiness. Wow, what a story. Thanks for sharing. Um, yeah, you know, I mean, you're good for you for, for uh, re relating to it in this way. You know, death is, death is the end of a body it's not the end of a relationship. And so um, I, I applaud you for your ability to actually see this without getting too clinical about it. You know, this is, you know, the death of your father was like some clinical spiritual teaching moment. Uh, you know, I, I'm not going there, obviously. That's not what I'm saying, that we don't want to kind of dehumanize just the raw pain and the humanity of what happened. But also, we can use it in, in this kind of opportune way, so to speak, <clears throat> to in fact do exactly what you're talking about, clear out a lot of karma. That's one of the reasons that death is so challenging is because so much karma comes um, to fruition and so much karma is exhausted around death. I mean, that's what death is for the person who's dying. It is the exhaustion of that karmic stream. And so that's one reason why the whole death thing is so charged. There's so much karmic stuff going on. Um, and, and so your way of relating it to it is, is really, I think, very beautiful that <clears throat> fundamentally, and this is very interesting, your terminology is very interesting to me. <clears throat> and this may seem kind of cold, but it's not cold. This is just noble truth. Um, sometimes these noble truths, so the very first teaching of the Buddha, noble truths. <clears throat> Why are they called noble? Not because they're elite but because they're, they're harsh, they're non-negotiable, they're uncompromising, they're rugged descriptions of reality. And, and it takes a noble character to look at them. Most people don't 
they don't want to look at this stuff. It's too difficult. In a certain sense, it's too noble. And so um, everything constituted of form will abandon you, <clears throat> not just your father, your body will abandon you. Um, everything you know, um, except for the Dharma, will abandon you. Um, all your possessions will abandon you. And so um, this is because the nature of reality is empty. It's connected to the earlier question um, from Wally that impermanence is, is a very direct and often painful expression of emptiness. That's how emptiness expresses itself, impermanence. And so fundamentally, everything's going to abandon us. We will be abandoned by everything. I have to say, I speak with a little bit of <laughs> poignancy around this myself, not only in relation to the death of my parents and my loved ones, but when I was a kid, both my parents worked. Uh, my father left every week to work, to spend the whole week out of the city. Um, my, mother was in, my mother was in the clinic all day. And obviously they were just supporting us. They were doing what they were doing, but. I, I seriously had abandonment issues. I did for, for many, many years. I, I mean, I just had kind of classic abandonment issues. And then I realized, just like you're saying, is, well, I can really look at this. You know, what, what is really abandoned? What, what's really going on here? And I realized that, you know, as these rugs of certainty, security, and comfort were being pulled out from underneath me, I could either freak out or I, I could learn how to hang out in that liminal space, that's liminal space, and that bardo, and that emptiness, and learn how to um, hang in there, you know, literally just kind of float with that space. And so my teacher, Kempo Rinpoche, spoke really beautifully about this sort of thing in terms of relationships, and this is so much easier said than done. He talked a lot about love without attachment, love without attachment. That, for many of us, that's almost an oxymoron. Um, but that's the way the great beings live. They're in love with everything, literally. <clears throat> um, but they love everything without attachment. <clears throat> and so I remember the story, allegedly, when Trungpa Rinpoche heard about the death of his dear, dear friend, Suzuki Roshi. Allegedly, he just wailed in anguish for I don't know how long. Um, not very long. He felt the tremendous loss of his dear, dear friend. But then because he wasn't graspy, because he wasn't so attached, he was able to let go. Now that, that may seem kind of cold and clinical and like inhumane. No, it's, it's really not. And so what this does, and again, these, these teachings are not so easy. They really are noble truths. I've, I've thought about this a lot, and I invite you to work with it as a kind of investigation or koan and see if it's not true for you. Um, is it not, in fact, the case that our grief, to whatever it is, if, whether it's, it's the loss of my bicycle, the loss of my computer, the loss of somebody steals my truck, somebody burns my house down, a loved one dies, my grief is directly proportional to how attached I am. Now that doesn't mean we shouldn't love. Absolutely, it's all about love actually. But notice how, how often our love is sticky. Our love is so sticky and that's why we suffer. So yes, we can use these difficult situations in fact to reveal exactly what you're talking about. <clears throat> that we can use this as a way to look at the nature of reality. Everything dies, Every, you know, again, Suzuki Roshi when, when asked to summarize Buddhism 
he said after pausing said simply said everything changes everything changes a more brutal way to say that is everything ends everything ends if it's form based everything dies and so this may seem kind of you know brutal and i would have to some in a somewhat more levit uh, enlightened way i have to share the story about Trungpa Rinpoche, I might have shared this with you before. This is a pretty cool story, as far as anything around this stuff can be cool, right? Rinpoche was teaching in Cresto on the Bardos, and uh, you know he's teaching about exactly this stuff. And somewhere in the end of Q and A, this guy comes up, raises his hand, <clears throat> and goes on and on and on, a little bit unloading on Rinpoche and unloading on Buddhism, saying. You know, I'm, I'm so sick and tired of this Buddhist stuff. You guys, all you talk about is old age, sickness, suffering, and death. And, and, and Rinpoche sat there, those of you who know him, he's just utterly unflappable. And his only response at the end was, old age, sickness, suffering, and death are not Buddhist inventions. Stunning insight. How are you going to relate to that reality, man? It's a, it's a, it's a suck fest. But how are you going to deal with it? These teachings give us an opportunity to deal with it. Okay, um, <clears throat> there's another one that came in. This is from Louisa, then I'll take a couple live ones. There's a couple more written ones here. They just keep coming, which is cool. That's why we're here. Ooh, here's a big philosophical one. Okay, Louisa, I'm confused about whether consciousness awareness exists outside <clears throat> and came before the body brain, or is it a part of the mind brain body that is a benefit of evolution that allows us to look at ourselves and thus better survive. David Loy in his book, The Day I Became a Floating Bubble of Awareness, that's a cool title, says that consciousness evolved in a Darwinian fashion to help us survive. <clears throat> uh, <clears throat> maybe, <clears throat> excuse me. Another writer, <clears throat> writer from Tricycle Olitsky, yeah, that's Andrew. He said they're kind of scholar in residence seems to agree by saying, quote, consciousness is not a force larger than ourselves, but a process taking place within ourselves. I can't believe he said that actually. <laughs> Are you sure about that? Um, I don't know where he came up with that one. My running commentary. And then back to him. And consciousness itself is like a mirror whose only function is to reflect whatever it encounters. The content of experience is provided by other mental processes, end quote. However, Jack Cornfield wrote, boy, I'm glad I'm reading this. I can't track all this without reading it. However, Jack Cornfield wrote, consciousness creates the world and physical reality is created out of consciousness and not the opposite. The nature of consciousness and mind are a field of creation rather than the mechanical result of having a body. <clears throat> yeah. Um, and then back to Louisa, I'm confused. I'm confused. <laughs> this is, Kempo Rinpoche used to talk this way. That's why I'm saying it. I'm, I'm confused. <clears throat> he would often say that. So I'm, I'm gently playing with you because I'm pretty confused as well. These statements come from respected teachers, writers, yet seem to say two entirely different things. What is your perspective and what do you think the Buddha would have said? Well, you know, the Buddha might not have said anything, honestly. Again, who's to know, right? <clears throat> Very often when the Buddha, really, no kidding. Very often when the Buddha was asked questions like this, he would do one of several things. He would just remain in silence. Or he would say, well, the question is not conducive for the purposes of liberation. Or he would say the question is erroneously posited. 
I think the latter two are somewhat connected to this. So my response to this is that it depends on who you're talking to, it depends on who you ask. They're not just these three views. There are dozens, dozens of different views about this. So Lloyd's view absolutely comes from a materialistic evolutionary perspective, not to be dismissed, but to be super contextualized. I mean, this is a really highly relative way of looking at the world. From that kind of Darwinian point of view, there's validity to that for sure. But that they, they don't have the patents on reality. This is what's called hegemony or, or absolutism where you know, the materialists, the high priests of science think they've got it all down. And so they categorically just dismiss all this other stuff because it doesn't fit into the, the lens of their limited bandwidth of investigation. That is such a pathetic hubristic um, way of looking at realities. Like don't even, my, my friend, Jeremy Hayward, the physicist just goes ballistic on this one. You know, he's just like, can you believe the arrogance um, that's where science slips into scientism, becomes poisonous. <clears throat> so the relative view, the scientific view has provisional validity, but whoa, man, I put that personally, I put that way off to the side. Jack's view, um, a little bit Andrew's, um, I don't quite understand why he would say what he did there actually. Um, Jack's view is more from the other extreme, a little bit, little bit like what we were talking about earlier in terms of mind only, chitta or in philosophical terms, idealism. But you know, this is a really, this is a colossal topic that has been debated by philosophers, psychologists, neuroscientists, physicists, mystics for thousands of years in different traditions. So there's no way I can even approach resolving the complexity of this issue. But fundamentally, it comes down to what is more foundational. Is mind more foundational? Um, or is, is matter more foundational? The Western view is, you know, reductionist, everything is, 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 again, Ken Wilber also goes ballistic on this because it's just ridiculous. Everything can be reduced to frisky dirt. I mean, forget it. That's just such a desacralizing way of looking at the world. Everything is an epiphenomena of matter. I don't think so. Um, it just makes no sense to me. The other so-called extreme is the kind of panpsychic extreme, idealistic extreme, um, where everything can be reduced to mind. Well, there's a middle way, um, literally, and, and actually a, a tenet from science, and again, this is why we can't just categorically throw out science. There's a massive difference, and Francis Tiso writes about this. There's a big difference between science and scientists. Science in itself is a really noble methodology. And in fact, in so many ways, if we're really careful, um, you know, Evan Thompson also rips this one apart. Um, you know, we can really super careful say that, you know, the, the uh, empirical traditions of mind share these kind of empirical, I wouldn't say scientific. Um, Evan Thompson shatters that view. Um, if you want to read about this, by the way, um, his most recent book, Why I Am Not a Buddhist, it's a fantastic critique of Buddhist modernism, Buddhist elitism, um, all these, I read it and was like, whoa, Evan, go for it, man. He, he, he rips, he, he really goes at it. But with that said, we can learn a little bit about um, the way to sort of work with this using a principle called complementarity from the physicist Niels Bohr. You know, he's the guy who always had these big boxing matches with Einstein. They really went at it, it was fantastic. And using, you know, <clears throat> he came up with this complementarity idea when they were trying to resolve 
the what's called the double slit experiment paradox, where depending on how they set up the experiment, you either measure, if you set it up one way, you measure light, the light appears as a particle. You measure that light using a different investigation, a different kind of apparatus, you get a wave. So what do you do with that? Well, on one level, light is a particle. On one level, light is a wave. Is one right? Is one wrong? Well, the idea is not to reify either. The idea is this principle of complementarity. They, they both have a place at this kind of integral table. So the way I relate to these complex questions is in fact through this type of lens of integral thinking that you, know, you can look at this and, and honor and incorporate these different truths if you contextualize them properly and, and you know, um, run away or at least be a very sensitive to the propensity we have for, for hegemony, for absolutism, for um, explanatory dominance. You know, who has more explanatory power here? And so I'm probably gonna let it go a little bit here. There's so much to say, you know, another way to ask this question. And I did ask this question both to Evan Thompson, listen to the interview I did with him. I asked him this question point blank. And I also asked the exact same question to Stephen LaBerge point blank. Does the universe, another way of asking what you're asking here, does the universe exist within the mind or does the mind exist within the universe? And they both completely independently brought up this notion of complementarity. So I'm gonna direct you to those interviews where I get into this with Evan and Stephen, pretty sharp thinkers, at least they are, not me, I'm the confused one. Um, and we go at this for a while. But you know, another way, uh, let me just say one last thing in relation to Kempo Rinpoche's um, Progressive Stages of Meditation on Empty Book. Everybody's gotta read this book. It's such a great book. It's that fundamentally, you can say in a very, very provisional way, everything here has to be defined so clearly that fundamentally in the end, everything is made of light. But what is that light? It's the light of the mind. Um, it's not the same as external light, nor is it different. And, and so really the Buddhist tradition, the highest descriptions of what's out there what really exists kind of connected to what we we're talking about before exists in quotation marks is light, light, light of the mind, light of reality. And so I'll let that go on that illuminating note. Um, really great question. These are colossal philosophical mystical issues that have been debated for literally thousands of years. So, hey, that's some heavy lifting for this morning. That's great. So I'll take a couple live ones and then I'll come back to a couple written ones here. If there's somebody out there that has a live one while I read the ones that came in. Yeah, let's bring in Katie first and then Barbara. Hi, Andrew. Hi. Hi. Are you uh, in the North Pole? You look like you're, you're freezing. I am freezing. I'm in my bedroom. It's not very warm up here. Yeah. Yeah, oh. the heat doesn't, in my house, the heat doesn't rise. It goes down. I don't understand oh, yeah. it. But the, light, oh, the light is frozen. See, that's a problem, frozen light. You're dealing <laughs> right. with the frozen that's light cool. issue. Anyway, there sorry. There you go, frozen light. So um, I'm, I'm, again, as I always start, tremendous gratitude for you and your teachings. And like, you know, my thing since the beginning is synchronicity. So today we got another big one going on here where I have a question. I actually have a question. And I thought, how am I going to establish the context to ask this question? And then in your um, beginning talk, you 
talked exactly about what my question is. So oh, cool. uh, exactly. So I, I'm starting this by saying I do have a question. Okay. okay. And I'm going to say that um, um, one of my teachers is Ed Podville, who was. Oh, I knew Ed. He was a sweetheart. What a dear man. Dear, what? dear man. And just yeah. so, so incredibly helpful to me. Yeah, he's a great guy. And um, as synchronicity would have it, uh, they just published um, transcripts of his talks about dreaming and lucid dreaming. And that's where really? my question comes from. Well, are they available? They are available. How can I get them? Because it's all about me. I want one. <laughs> well, again, I, I would I, love I, to get them. I, I think they're available. I mean, I, I was... Um, from who? I'm, I'm part of um, this... You know, we started Maitri Psychological Services, you know, the mental hospital, you know yeah, about that? Yeah. I do. So I was one of the, the founding members of that. Oh, so good for you. That, yeah. I'm part of that group. So they let me know about the transcripts. So when I say they're available, I guess I'd have to find out if they in fact are available for everybody. Well, let, yeah, let me know. I, I'd love to look at them because I have a lot of respect for Ed. He was a really pretty clever guy. So cool. yeah, you're anyway. gonna you're gonna be blown away by what I'm telling you here. So okay. This is a seminar that he gave in the mid 80s. And in this seminar, he's talking about lucid dreaming and how he's really interested in this. And that, you know, because you have to go back in time here. He discovered that there was a, a man named Marquis d'Herve de Saint Denis, a French nobleman, yeah. writing yep. about lucid dreaming in the mid 1800s. Yep. So Ed decided he was going to have this guy translated from the French to English. Right. He paid for this. So anyway, I'm gonna just try to be brief. I'm gonna read you a paragraph from the seminar to set up the question. Okay. okay. So he's talking about the marquee and lucid dreaming. And he says, um, and he's talking about that liminal state, the hypnagogic state, which Ed talked about a lot because he was uh, a trained psychoanalyst. So he was right. very up on Freud. That was a big part of what he taught. So in teaching us, his students, he talked about the hypnagogic state quite a bit. Oh, cool. Now he's kind of linking it with the marquee because he's into this stuff. Okay. So he goes, the general idea is to look for and spot a particular phenomena. That phenomena is the transition between thinking and imagining. Noticing the thinking is not very difficult at first, but as the sleep progresses, there is a gradual and stepwise transition into pictorial imaging. The thoughts themselves become pantomimes out there being spoken and enacted toward you. And this seems to be a somewhat wild time of thinking, but it is a preliminary and essential first step towards further expanding one's awareness during dreaming, an absolute necessary step to take cultivating this attention and noticing this transition between thinking and imaging. If one does that, then one enters the chamber of dreams, so to speak, with some awareness intact. Mm -hmm. The first thing one notices is that suddenly one or a number of others appear. The others seem to be communicating something. There is then engagement with these others. One begins to talk to and be talked to by these others. It generally takes a good deal of time and practice to get this far, but the Marquis and others have taken it beyond this step. They arrived at an experience where they actually felt that they were dreaming. 
Nobody seems to be able to put it better than that. There was a feeling of dreaming. Cool. Yeah, that's really okay. cool. Yeah. So, so again, so what, you know, me, because it's all about me, right? And you at this moment. But anyway, <laughs> um, I'm thinking to myself, I'm always thinking of questions to ask you. And the only question that's come up lately is about the transition between thinking and imaging. And uh, so I wanted to ask you about that. And, okay. and, the, and, and the synchronicity is that, you know, I'm, I'm reading Luminous Emptiness in my remake class. I'm listening to oh, Kempo nice. talk about Mahamudra. I'm listening to Jules translate the Kempo. I'm listening to all of your classes, you know. So anyway, so then this thing from Ed comes through. And then the question, the question is okay. to talk about the transition from thoughts to images, like the implications of that. Like when I'm meditating, you know, I'm aware of thoughts. They're like words. Do they actually have the power to create reality? Like, is that how we create these realms that we're in? Like somehow the thinking creates the world. Well, yes and no. So um, thinking creates your version of the world. So it's a little bit like that first question. Um, it doesn't create the world, um, but it colors it in, in a very powerful way. So what, um, what it does, you know, let, let me backpedal to the dream thing. So this is the difference between what happens in the dream and what happens here. That in the dream, we, we can see, and especially in this kind of um, liminal space, we can actually witness how thought creates reality in that arena. Again, that's, that's what's called lucid solipsism. It actually has a name where you can literally, you can see, you can see how thought, just like you're saying, morphs the thought image, morphs into dreamlet, morphs into dream. And this is, it's like, a, it's actually a form of wake initiated lucid dreaming. He didn't mention that term, but maybe he didn't know of it. This is Stephen's term. That's a wake initiated lucid dream. So it's a way to actually watch how thought in this instance creates reality, it, but it, that's just ultimate selfism. That's just because it's your reality, mostly. Um, with this, not quite the same, but also not totally different because here what happens is um, the world is actually co-enacted, co-conspired, brought up with, with people that share the same kind of karma. So, you know, you can't really say, you can say on a provisional level that thought creates reality in the sense, um, in what's called the, the phenomenal sense, <clears throat> in, in the way that and this is again, philosophers can help us here. You know, philosophers talk, there's different ways of using this, this idea, but philosophers use the term sometimes the difference between relational versus phenomenal reality. In our language, <clears throat> this is the difference between paratantra and parikalpata, where there is something there. It's a little bit like what we talked about last week when we did that very brief investigation on naive realism and non-contextual realism. You know, is the moon there when you're not looking at it? Yes. Yes, there is something there, but your senses can't disclose it. What, that's relational reality, that's paratantra. But the thing of course is not a thing. So everything here is in quotation marks. You don't create that. What you create is your phenomenal reality. So when you look and that moon is there, <clears throat> you enact that, you bring forth that. So that's the part that you create. You don't create the, the paratantra. You don't create the relational reality. 
that's beyond your scope. But you, you, you at a very deep level here, this is like Alia and below, co-create this karmically. The Kala Chakra Tantra is all about this. And so, so yes and no. On one level, yes, you create it at the phenomenal level. On another level, no, you don't create it in this kind of new age, ridiculous thing. <clears throat> you know, you don't create the relational reality, the, the Paratantra. And so understanding that, you know, um, actually is quite empowering. It shows us how in a very real way, just very practically speaking, you know, we're not victims of reality. We're victims of our phenomenal projections, our imputations, our hopes, our fears, everything we bring to the relational reality, the whatever is out there. And again, everything here is in quotations because on one level, there is no out there out there, right? You know, even the physicist will tell you that. There, there isn't even that out there out there, but we have to start somewhere. And so we start by centrifuging these kind of particular concepts out. And then relatively quickly, we can sort of start to slough away um, the, uh, and reveal this notion of naive realism. Naive meaning, it's a wonderful pejorative term, meaning that you think there's something out there independent of you. There isn't. So you slough away all these relative projections. Psychology can really help us there. And then you drop deeper into the ontological projections. And that's where we start talking about the, the co-construction, the co-enactment, the co-emergence of the relational reality. And that is a colossal topic that um, where angels fear to tread, I fear to tread on that in the context of this Q&A. But it's, this stuff is so cool. And I didn't know that about Ed Podwell. So that's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Is that helpful? Huh? That's helpful. Well, you know, it, it takes me back to something that you said before about um, Alan Wallace's wife had written a book and the second chapter was explaining how we all create this reality. The second that's the second chapter of the Kala Chakra Tantra. Yeah. So, um, oh, I happen to have it right here. Hold on, I'll show, I'll show I you. Guess, I guess the message is I really, if I really want to know my answer to all this, I need to read that. You know, I got to pay like I would highly recommend it. Yeah. Okay. Second chapter of the Kala Chakra Tantra. It is not an easy read, but this is exactly what um, the Kala Chakra uh, talks about is is how we co-enact this world you know that we karmically bring into fruition this particular dimension and then we reap the fruits of that co-collective karma so yeah i would i would recommend um exploring that particular text it'll, it'll help you get a grip on this stuff okay cool yeah All wonderful right. love thank it thank you so much i i just want to thank you again because not only is it very um you know answering my questions all all these wonderful Okay. there's a way to describe this. It's like, you know, I've been studying this stuff for a long time. I have never understood it as well as um, I have now because of you. You're, oh, you're like so a translator, uh, you know, and so now I can, I can read Luminous Emptiness and listen to the Kempo talk about Mahamudra and realize it's not out there. It's all yeah. right here. And right. it relates to everything going on now. So I can't yeah. thank you enough Welcome. for that. And it's just, you're a kick in the pants. You're so much fun. Thank you so much. Well, because yeah. the whole thing is a big bloody joke. Let me yeah. give you another, for a deep diver like you, I, I, I'm giving you two reading, two reading assignments. Okay. One is, uh, it's literally called the Inner Kala Chakra Tantra, Oxford Publications, not cheap. You can even get it. Um, that's the Inner Kala Chakra is that the one by Alan that's, Wallace? That's Vesna Wallace's book. Um, 
The other one I recommend, also not easy to read, but we're not talking about easy stuff here, right? We're no. talking about the nature of reality. The other one that I, I've been plugging for the last year from a completely other end is um, Donald Hoffman, the cognitive neuroscientist, his book, um, The Case Against Reality. What a great title. Yeah. The Case Against Reality, How Evolution Hid the Truth from Our Eyes. You, you soak in these two books and it'll change your life. So. Okay, so, cool. So Thank you so okay? much. Yeah. Welcome. All right, so one live check question, then we'll get another, um, I mean, one written one, then another live one from Kara. Is it important, is it important to use the lotus flower to do, to do the generation meditation when doing Temple of Sleep? Um, well, it's helpful, I'll, I'll come back to that. Or could I use a dream image I have that is not the flower? If I must use lotus, I'm conf confused. There's so many confused people here today. <laughs> What is it with you guys? <laughs> the confused leading the confused. I, I, I remember so clearly Kempo Rinpoche. That's the way he talked about, you know, relaxed, confused. He, he always put like a little hyphen and then added the ED. It's just so funny. Um, if, I must use, uh, if I must use the Lotus, uh, yes, you must, only you. I'm confused about whether to use the two-dimensional red picture or use a real photo, a lotus, to develop a 3D image. You don't have to use the lotus, no. Um, it's just a heuristic. It's, it's, a, it's a way to install this dimmer. What, what Kara is referring to here is this inner yogic um, technique of when you're doing dream yoga, you visualize a red lotus in your heart, in your throat center. Um, you don't have to use that. Um, there's a number of reasons why it's helpful. You could use, some people say, use an image and imagine your guru there. Imagine Amitabha there. Imagine Padmasambhava there. You know, tiny little Buddha. Imagine them in your throat. The idea is to bring the prana there. You want to bring the winds there. Where, where the mind goes, the winds go. Where the winds go, the bindus go. Where the windus, windus, <laughs> windus, where the windus go, where the, where the bindus go, that's a new hybrid of, of winds and bindu, windus. Where the bindus go, so goes consciousness. So you wanna use the power of imagination really as a way to direct the mind to that lo lo location. The lotus is helpful because it represents purity. It's a symbol of awakening. Um, the four petals of the lotus are there as a way to use a kind of graduated descent into the dream state. So you, you don't have to use it, um, but it's there for a reason. I use it all the time because to me, you can actually almost like auto, auto uh, hypnosis. You can step your way down by working around the lotus, um, but you don't have to use it. Um, you can use anything. Uh, Two-dimensional, you want it, no, you want it to be 3D. Um, you, want it, you want to breathe life into it. You know, Mipar um, Rinpoche once said, cartoon visualization brings about cartoon realization. So inject some life in it, make it flutter, make it real, make it alive. It's as much feeling as it is visualizing, feelingization as it is visualization. So um, yeah, again, you don't need to use it, but it's there for a reason. And I, I personally find it extremely effective for kind of stepping down using this dimmer. You can step yourself down because where do you end up when you, when you finish going around Lotus, where do you end up? You fall into the central channel. 
the central lotus, the aspect. That's where you're going to go when you sleep and dream anyway. So that's what I would recommend. Uh, okay, do we have another live one? I have to um, fulfill my promise and go back and forth. Yeah, let's bring in Barbara next. Hello. Hi, Barbara. Hi. Hi, Hi Andrew. Hello. Um, <laughs> this is kind of synchronistic because this is, I'm also uh, reading Luminous Emptiness again. Oh, I read it 10 years ago, and I, I just took the Tibetan uh, Book of the Dead class with you as well. So it prompted oh, me to yeah, read it. Oh, yeah, that was fun. Cool. What, you know, what an incredible book. And also to read something you read 10 years ago, it's just, it's I, I agree that with all of your teachings, this has just been so powerful. So last night, I read this sentence, and it just like totally stopped me in my tracks. Oh, and cool. here it is. Okay. It's space is the non-existence of everything that exists. And I went, wow. But it's so cool because she goes on to say, so whenever there is a sense of grasping and fixation, there is also the possibility of letting go. Mm -hmm. Whenever there is a sense of being trapped, there is also the possibility of openness and freedom. Whenever there is the sense of tension and solidity, there is also the possibility of relaxation and dissolving. Yeah, nice. And it was just like, blew me away because I've been like so overwhelmed with how often I contract, you know? Always. I mean, <clears throat> oh my goodness. It's just like always back to me, my, I, and it's like, oh, you're thinking, how am I ever gonna, uh, you know? <laughs> but this helped me see that it's always there. It's yeah. just to keep opening and yeah. so, I just wanted to uh, throw that out there and, yeah, that's awesome. and thank yeah. you so much because I'm um, taking these different classes and, and I'm like going back and forth to different books, but I realize it's all one thing. It's On one level. Kind of yeah, it's true. Beautiful yeah. how much all of it um, supports every other aspect you're Isn't studying. It? And so um, I wanted to thank you for that again. Welcome. Yeah. No. It's a, it's, I'm oh, sorry. No, Frances Francesca's book is, is fantastic. It's a minor masterpiece. And she's such a sweetheart. I, I know her. I met her in London. Um, she's just great. And the book, somebody told me it's going out of print, which, which I hope it isn't. But um, yeah, it's an unbelievable book. And so I couldn't agree more with you on it. And I'm not sure what else to say outside of thank you for sharing the quotation because uh, it's just spot on. So was there, was there anything else? Barbara? Well, I just want to, are you ready for something wacky? Oh, uh, sure. Sure. <laughs> it's something really wacky because a couple nights ago I had a dream. It wasn't a lucid dream, but it was a very vivid dream and you were in it, but actually. That makes it wacky by definition. The main <laughs> character in the dream was your mother. That's my what mother. was so weird. Your <laughs> mother. And I mean, imagine my surprise, but I kind of like was stunned because in the dream she had known um, mutual friends of my childhood family and so we kind of had bonded and and you know and then all of a sudden we were in a hat store and you were there and you were thrilled because you found they had a five pound hat <laughs> and you were buying this five pound hat and your mother and I are kind of going oh this is great this will really ground him <laughs> and I woke up laughing oh, so good. Uh, it's, I definitely need some grounding. So there you take, go. I take more than might take more than five pounds. That's a great story, Barbara. Thanks for sharing it. <laughs>
All the best to you. Thank you. Take care. Bye. That's a good one. one. Okay. So a couple more here. Uh, Wendy, um, also just starting in the group after the excellent Tibetan Book of the Dead class. Oh, that's cool. I'm glad you thought it was excellent. I had fun. I'm able to wake up and have lucid dreams. Cool. I've been able to do this forever. Really cool. Now that, now that I'm aware that I can, should be using this time to explore consciousness, don't should on yourself. That's my favorite line. Don't should on yourself. If it feels okay, do it. You don't have to do anything. Um, you don't want to, but you can use it, right? I'm not sure what I should be doing or asking or intending to do once I'm lucid in the state. What resources would you recommend here? By the way, I picked up Andrew's book on dream yoga. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, you know, uh, in a gesture of uh, shameless, shameless self-promotion, um, nine stages of what you can do. Um, in the latter part of the book, uh, I talk about my cartography, my mapping of, of the nine stages of what you do with lucid dreaming slash dream yoga. You can also read um, the book that just came out. Oh, I thought I had it down here, but I don't. Uh, just came out last week called uh, the art, no, no, the uh, lucid dreaming workbook. Um, that's a little bit more about what you can do with lucid dreams in the, re in the arena of lucid dreaming per se. The dream yoga book you picked up is more about dream yoga proper. And I think you'd be much more um, well served because with that book, because it goes much deeper than the other book. So yeah, and then Francesca Fremont, Luminous Emptiness, you mentioned that as well, similar to Barbara's thing. Totally, soak that book up as well. Um, so you'll have more, you know, the nine steps will give you more than enough of things to do as you dream. So dive into those. Okay, one more and then Andy, if you've got one. Tim, is there a book you highly recommend covering the terms and language of the tradition you are in? I'm also more familiar with the Hindu yogic tradition and want to become clear of the differences. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of differences and a lot of similarities. So, oh my gosh, there's so many books. Um, I have to say the ones that I, I personally like, <clears throat> there's a, a really wonderful two volume set by my friend, Reggie Ray. Um, many of you listening probably know him. He lives not too far from me here. He's a great guy. He wrote two, I think, pretty helpful books here, um, Indestructible Truth. That's a Hinayana Mahayana exposition. And then Secrets of the Vajra World. That's the Tantra on Vajrayana. I highly recommend those books, a fantastic overview. Uh, you'll get your edition in, in clear on the differences. You gotta do a little bit of cross-cultural cross, cross work here. Um, I mean, the book that immediately comes to mind that might help you here is Tantra Illuminated, Tantra Illuminated by Christopher Wallace. That's pretty darn good um, comparison. Obviously much more about Hindu Tantra than Buddhist Tantra, but there you'll see a lot of parallels there. So those are the three that I'd recommend, the two books by Reggie and then the one by Chris. Okay, one last written one and then, oh, I've got a few minutes. Um, if there's a couple more hands up, we can get those and then I gotta go. I'm getting a haircut today. My first haircut in like, I don't know how many months. I mean, if I actually let my hair kind of go down like this, it would cover the screens so like, okay. Uh, from David, uh, is the wheel of time a Kala Chakra?
Oh yeah. Okay. This the the the, the um, formatting of this question is a little confusing. Is the is the Wheel of Time colon Kala Chakra in context the book you have recommended for a deeper understanding of Kala Chakra? What chapter in particular did you suggest? Well, there are five main chapters to the Kala Chakra. Reading, I, I'm I'm not sure if there's. I know I know Vesna Wallace is slowly translating all five. <clears throat> The second one is the one I recommend. To get an overview of the Kala Chakra, there are a ton of other books. I might actually recommend them first because the Inner Kala Chakra Tantra, the second chapter, is not an easy read. So there's one by Nedrup Gyalso. Um, oh, do I have it here? I can't remember the title of it. Oh, I do. It's right here. Hold on. Let me get it. There's so many of these, I can't <clears throat> always remember the titles. This is a, 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 an absolute classic, Ornament of Stainless Light by Kedrup Norsang Gyatso, an exposition on the Kala Chakra. Um, Bob Thurman recommends this one a ton. He's a, he's a big Kala Chakra guy. So it's a, ma a massive book. What is it, like 800 pages or something? Oh no, only 700. That's not so bad. Here it is. I, you know, this this is like the Bible, um, the ornament of stainless light, and there's also a ton of commentaries, a lot, a lot. Um, several by the Dalai Lama. They're all over the place right now, but this is the one. And then once you wrap your mind a little bit about that, then the second chapter altogether, um, I'd recommend those. Okay. Cool. Yeah, this is a, these are monumental translations. So, any other uh, live ones, or are we are we good to go for today, Andy? Where are we? Yeah, we have one more queued up. Uh, let's bring in Alejandro. Uh, hello, hello, Andrew. Uh, hey, buddy. Hi, hi. This is Alejandro again. Uh, yes. Hola, 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 hola. Come on, come on, stand there, amigo. <laughs> yeah, and uh, super happy. Thank you. I I I I arrive a little late. I I'll, I need to apologize because of that. Uh, so Andrew, I I got this question. I got oh, so many questions, uh, but I'll try to uh, uh, get one clear out. Okay. Uh, so I. You know, as a person with the history of uh, addiction in cannabis, uh, it seems cannabis, uh, what it does, it's uh, pretty much spread, uh, spread my attention into thousands of places, you know, and, and because I use it for so long, you know, I now, I, 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 I feel I'm coming out to, to life uh, very strongly, very, uh, with a lot of, uh, because, because of meditation. And you know, I, I, I'm exploring different ways. I'm, I'm now just recently, I, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, uh, putting uh, intermittent fasting into my oh. habit. So it's like I start meditate. I, I start the day. I I meditate. I swim. I get 
like in a turbo energy and then oh and then i'm so tired and then but then i'm finding out that fasting it, it, it's so helpful for meditation it's so and and maybe i shouldn't be asking this because it's working right proper like what i'm doing like my motivation and my concentration are improving cool but then all all those all these things are happening as well you know uh, on one side uh i start feeling more like stronger and more powerful and then i start forgetting how to be humble mm -hmm. and 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 then you know I, I i like to hear what's your advice on 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 keeping on like on the path uh and and being more uh, still fostering more uh, or sure. fostering concentration motivation sure and energy and and while doing this not losing the ground and, and being able to to stay humble and not sure. not Good. feel like better than anyone else or not now everybody's like i i i, I remain dormant for like literally 30 years and now that i'm waking up to life it's, it's like i feel this part of me is like now everybody's gonna hear me like you are going to hear alex you know the 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 alex 16 you know the song king you know it's it's kind of crazy it's ego and all this but sure so i have a good, i have a really good suggestion for you so where do you live do you live in mexico city right yeah yeah so i would and i really i mean this i would strongly recommend you volunteer for hospice volunteer for hospice because what happens is and again one of the, it's, it's it's a fantastic way to accelerate personal evolution and development is to work for others, to think for others. Because otherwise what can happen is we can get, this is a very powerful near enemy of psycho-spiritual work. Me, 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 me. It's all about me. I'm waking up, I'm getting better. I'm not dissing that. I'm just putting it in context. Um, if you really wanna wake up, my friend, in the limited time you have in this life, um, and it's very interesting. I, let me show you, I share a personal story with this. You know, My teacher again, Kempo Rinpoche, he would often say, you know, you really can't accelerate your spiritual development. You can't really accelerate your path. Everything has to work out karmically on its own time. But he said, however, there is one thing that can help. There is one thing that can help you accelerate your path. Stop doing it so much for yourself. Work for others. And sometimes, not sometimes, often, I recommend literally street level get out and help other people. So that'll make you humble. It'll make you a servant in, instead of a master. And in particular, in my opinion, there's nothing more humbling, more empowering, more beautiful and noble than working with the dying. Um, it's not easy, amigo, but if you want to really wake up, you can, you can um, engage every hospice, at least in the US, I don't know what it's like in your city, has hospice volunteer training. It's not terribly extensive. You can go in there, suss it out, see what it feels like. And then the minute you start working with that, it'll reframe your life because impermanence is, is, is welcomed into your life. And it will get us out of our, our little bubble zones. 
and it'll help us um, work for the benefit of other people because fundamentally that's the point anyway. And it's a, it's a really powerful shadow element of the, of the whole spiritual thing. Meditative bypassing, spiritual bypassing. So I would very strongly recommend, and you may, you may want to say, oh God, I, I wish I wouldn't ask him this stupid question. <laughs> See if there's a, a somewhere nearby where you can be of service to other people. If that doesn't speak to you, work at a, at a food kitchen. I mean, literally, that, I'm not kidding, my friend. Get in the dirt, get in the mix, get out of your little thing. And I'm, I'm, I'm saying because I, I do the same thing. It's why I do my volunteer work. I, I founded a, a nonprofit charity that works in you know, developing countries. Because otherwise, I'm living in this cerebral, academic, spiritual ivory tower. So I, I throw myself into these environments because it's so easy to get kind of too antiseptic with our practice. So um, um, this is your homework assignment. So the other person I recommended those two books, your homework assignment is to see if there's a place where you can do some volunteer work. And in particular, where you can volunteer for hospice. I'm not kidding, my friend. Um, it's gonna rub you, it's not easy, but it's gonna challenge you, put you into the growth zone in a way that almost nothing else will. All right, thank, thank you. So hospice is in Spanish, in Spanish would be where the old people go. Yes, yeah. well, hospice, hospice, you can work in a nursing home, but hospice here in the US, you can look, you can Google it, H-O-S-P-I-C-E, is specifically working with people that have six months or less to live. So it's not just nursing home work, it's working with the dying. And they're wow. always looking for volunteers. The volunteers are a huge part of their team. They're honored, they're trained, they go in, they, they make these beautiful, poignant relationships with the dying people. They're with them. It's a very powerful, it will change your life, amigo. So that's your homework assignment. Okay, bud? Oh, thank you very yeah. much. Yeah, thank you. it'll change your life, my friend. Okay, maybe one last one and then I got to go get my haircut. All right, great. Let's bring in Barbara next. Hi, Barbara. Hi, can you hear me? Yes. Great. Andrew, thank you so much. I just finished the Tibetan Book of the Dead uh, course with you. Oh. And uh, it was fabulous. Um, thank you. I know everyone's been thanking you. Um, I have one question for you. In the last module, you were speaking about various uh, thoughts on helping people to pass. Mm -hmm. And um, there was one thing that you said that struck me as really riveting. And I was wondering if you could just speak a little bit about it. Mm -hmm. It was sitting behind someone who was passing and tapping them on oh, yeah. the head. Yeah. Uh, and I was wondering what is the intention of that tapping? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great question. So again, this is a, a little bit, you know, now we're, we're back into the mysterious, mysterious world of Tibetan Buddhism and their description of these processes. So the reason you do that, and I do it, I, I, I do this when I'm around dying people, is um, according to the inner body transitional processes, you know, consciousness will leave the body at the moment of death through one of nine physical portals. Um, the most auspicious of those, it's, it's, again, you kind of have to drink the Tibetan Kool-Aid here, but the most auspicious of these exit um, points is what's called a Brahmarandra you know, the fontanelle, eight fingers behind a normal um, hair, hairline. That's where consciousness, that's the highway to heaven, so to speak. And so all the, the, the uh, teachings 
say that when a person is dying, you don't want to gather at their feet. You want to gather behind them. You want to bring their awareness to the top of the head. And there are actually specific types of POA. Again, POA is this transfer of consciousness thing. There's actually particular types of POA where you can actually rub. You can see a, a video of this, by the way. It's pretty, in, um, I think it's this Canadian broadcast, a two-part series on the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Um, it's worth watching. It's, it, it, it shows some really interesting footage in Ladakh, India of these, of these meditation uh, lamas dealing with people who are dying. And there's one scene there where you'll notice the, the lama comes behind the dying person and starts putting the stuff on the top of his head. That's actually a classic type of poa that we're referring to here. But very specifically, again, I did this with my, my cat when I put her down. Um, when, when I was with my parents and others where I have that kind of you know, intimate kind of permission, I, I would literally just rest my hand on the top of their head and just gently, just gently tap, just gently tap, bringing their awareness there, bringing their awareness there, bringing their awareness there. Um, and again, the teachings say that will invite the winds, the mind, them, you know, eventually what's called the Machikpa Tigle, the indestructible Bindu, Closest thing in Buddhism, by the way, to a soul, <laughs> not quite, but close. It will invite that to then exit out the top of the head. Um, and so that's the kind of, uh, you know, phenomenology behind that process and why you do it. It's connected to, you know, poa altogether, what's called Nirmanakaya poa. So if you want to look at it more deeply, you can look at, you know, P-H-O-W-A, poa. And in particular, when people talk about it, 99% of the poa that's talked about is what's called Nirmanakaya poa, which is this motion up and down, you know, the central channel and then exiting the top of the head. So pretty esoteric, but, um, I, you know, I've done these practices. I felt all the sensations at the top of the head. It's not that hard. Um, and it makes complete utter sense. And so this is just a way to help people make that transition. Okay. Thank you so okay. much. Yep. Welcome. Okay. Thanks everybody. Got to go get my haircut. See you next week. Got to go see you. Bye. I really enjoy these sessions. Terrific questions as usual. Keep them coming. Stay safe. Wash your hands. Keep your heart open. See you next week. Ciao.